general nerdery. In a dingy and slightly damp corner of the podcasting universe, Great Atuan flies through the airwaves, and on top of him, four giant turtles. On top of them, two generals of nerdery making a podcast about liking things. Does that mean we're holding the disc? Uh, possibly. I kind of forgot to add the disc in partway through that. I was trying to remember a quote from one of the Discworld books, and I really messed it up. Oh, yeah. But. That's okay. It's okay. We can either be on the disc, we can be under the disc, you know, whatever. We have been flattened by the disc. Probably. We have been pancaked. By the glory of Terry Pratchett. Anyways, guys. Hi, I'm your General Zach. I'm General Tyler. Uh, and as we might have mentioned here, this is General Nerdery, your podcast about liking things. Uh, we are once again not in the same room. So there might be a whole lot of one of us starting to talk and the other going, uh, uh, and, but we'll get through it. Magic of editing makes us sound great. So great-ish. Uh, <laughs> as great-ish as it ever sounded. We're here in the middle of the hellscape that is March of 2020. By the time this comes out, it'll be April of 2020. So, you know, about 15 years from now. Uh, but we're here to talk about good things because Lord knows we could freaking use it right now. Right. Well, I think like last week, let's start with what we've been ingesting because we should all be inside doing not much. So Yeah. Uh, so... Last week, I said that I would give reports on the two new things that I was getting ready to ingest, the Grant Morrison Green Lantern Run and Stardew Valley, and I have touched neither one of those things <laughs> since that happened, um, because life is, as we have said, a horror show, and uh, at the very least, the Green Lantern book was proving a little dark for me. Mm. So I have... I read uh, the most recent Plastic Man miniseries by Gail Simone. It is amazing. It is just great. Plastic Man is the original comedic superhero starting in the 40s. Stuff that Deadpool was doing uh, later, 50 years later with ultraviolence, he was doing in night. Jack Cole was doing with Plastic Man in 1940 early, I don't know, 40-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and it holds up today. Gil Simone, who I have now recommended about six different times in different places, really understood the character and how you could do some dark stuff and some funny stuff and some good action stuff. She has a very good sense of action and comedy at the same time. It was a really lovely distraction. Nice. Uh, and then my other one, I have like 15 things cause you know, we're all going through like amazing stuff, but I'm going to just, I'm going to just do two. Okay. I, I thought I was done with walking with dinosaurs, monsters, beasts, Jesus, crazy cavemen costume, Jesus. Yes. God, I still want to see that. Um, <laughs> but Cece showed me something that I did not know. The people who did walking with dinosaurs had all of the CGI. So they're like, we're just going to do so much with it. Because it's not that expensive to do the animals again when you already have the, like, CGI render or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they had spent obscene amounts of money on it for 2000 so why not get all you can out of it? And they did another one called Prehistoric Park. Okay. Prehistoric Park 
is about a guy named Nigel, who is a, we looked him up. I don't know his last name. He's a real nature documentary guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nigel who, Thornberry? Like has, yes, Nigel Thornberry. No, um, this guy has worked with uh, David Attenborough several times. Like he's serious on the level of stuff. He has also somehow been like, almost attacked by sharks and bitten by poisonous snakes or had poisonous snakes spit stuff in his eyes like five times. Oh, damn. He's like the hardcore kind of jackass edge of like Sir David Attenborough. Okay. Um, But the story is he has created this park where he goes back in time, rescues animals that have gone extinct and brought, and I am quoting here, them to the safety of the 21st century. (laughs) Which, with everything going on in the 21st century right now, is the most bizarre line. But I get it. It was like 2003. They were very optimistic about things. Right. Um, and it's kind of interesting because you do, you get to learn about the ancient world. You get to learn about different species. And it's not just like just dinosaurs. He goes to like when giant insects were a thing. He gets a mammoth at one point. And then you also learn a lot about what we do with real life conservation. Like one of the animals gets injured at the park and they're, they have to go around dealing with it. Or like there is this one caretaker and apparently one caretaker has to deal with all of this named Bob. And you just like have side B stories of Bob's life trying to keep this park running. Okay. While this insane asshole Nigel just goes back in time and pops up with completely different animals than he's promising. He's like... I'm going to go rescue a micro raptor. But he also happens to bring back a herd of gigantosaurus at the same time. And he's like, you'll be fine, Bob. It's it's weirdly insane how close both of our ingestings are once again. That's awesome. I'm very excited. Uh, But it's kind of like a, a more child friendly Jurassic Park that includes like an educational aspect to it. Um it's weird, and we made fun of it the whole time, but it's actually pretty well done, and I actually did learn things. So, great. We wanted more episodes. There's only, like, six episodes. Okay. And I really just... Nigel was like, I'm going to do this thing. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, Nigel. We'll see you and come back. Tell me more about Bob. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you can find it, Prehistoric Park from the creators of Walking with Dinosaurs and all of those... Uh, I say that I am now out, but I am pretty sure I am not out because I was looking up the entire like run of things these guys did. And they just they just keep putting them out. They did there for like for years. Oh, wow. For like a decade's worth of stuff, (laughs) the CGI that they got from walking with dinosaurs. That's amazing. Yeah. What about you? What have you been uh, ingesting? So (laughs) I I said that that ours were kind of similar. And that's that's mm-hmm. true on a very base level, uh, with it being <laughs> about uh, a crazy cast of characters taking care of an animal park. Ooh, I uh, like what seems to be about ninety percent of the rest of America uh, binge watched Tiger King this weekend. Okay, what the hell is Tiger King? I have been seeing. All the memes? References to it, and none of it makes sense to me. Who is this weird Florida man that is the Tiger King that everyone's obsessed with? Uh, so Joe Exotic. Ooh. Wait, didn't he... He run for president? Yes. Yeah, John Oliver talked about him once. Yeah. He had, like, the best, worst, why-you-should-vote-for-me commercial I've ever seen. 
So wait, didn't he murder somebody? Uh, he was caught in a murder for hire plot. <laughs> it's that's that's not even like the tip of the insanity, dude. I I don't. It's like a train wreck happening that gets hit by a tornado and all of that gets flung into the nearby volcano which erupts all over Mardi Gras. So, is this something that, like, we are actually recommending or is this something like, oh god, I'm trying to think of, like, terrible reality, I don't know, toddlers and tiaras that, like, some people can't look away from it but it's horrible. Well, you... It's... It, it is kind of that. It's presented in a much more serious way. It, it's much more... It's still an inner... It's a documentary. It's an entertainment doc, but it's it's still more on the doc side. Wow, though. Okay. Uh, so Joe Exotic is uh, this... He owns uh, a zoo with like 180 tigers... He's been breeding them, selling them, at some points, definitely illegally. Okay, so I'm going to guess when we say zoo, we mean, like, bullshit roadside attraction zoo, not... Right, right, right. Not like San Diego Zoo. Yeah, not, not you know, Fiona the hippo taking over my Facebook and making my life better from the Cincinnati Zoo, but, you know... No, no, more like that uh, tourist trap type zoo. Ugh. But uh, oh, but gigantic. Um, who is in a gay thruple that was very fueled by meth, who ended up running for president and uh, getting caught in a murder for hire plot. And that's just the one person. Everybody in the series seems to have just as insane of a story. I kind of try and avoid, like, the trashiest dregs of humanity documentaries. But I might have to try this one. This one is... How many episodes is it? Uh, Seven. I'm on six. I saved one to just, like, cap the weekend off with. Like, what, half-hour docs? Uh, Like, 45-ish, hour-ish, a little bit, like, in that range. I might try this and see how we feel. Like, all of my quarantine friends are like, yep. This is how I'm getting through, and I just... It's either going to be amazing, or it's going to be emotionally draining on me during this dark times. Uh, It is... It's kind of weirdly amazing. I don't know how all these people not just exist separately, but exist, and then their lives intertwine. And (laughs) some of it is really fucked up. Like, none of these are really good people, especially once you learn all of the stories. Some of them seem kind of charming at first, and then the story just continues. Uh, But that's almost what makes it even crazier, is just how it it keeps going. Uh, There's another tiger breeder that basically runs a sex cult. Oh my god. And Joe Exotic and uh, this gal, uh, Carol Baskin, are in this giant feud... And she technically runs a big cat rescue, but it kind of seems like she might have killed one of her husbands and also kind of operates her rescue on kind of slave labor almost. 
slave labor's extreme this, way of putting it, but this sounds like a Mexican soap opera, to be honest with you. Dude, it is the wildest thing. But like I think Florida I've, Man Mexican soap opera. Uh it might be the wildest thing I've ever seen. It's huh. a amazing huh. that this story exists and that it's not even fake which makes parts of it all the more sadder but also all the more real so yeah this is one of the things and i've been seeing these all freaking week every time i read the news i feel like that if you had written this story and proposed it as a tv series like as a fiction some tv producer would have been like that's that's too far from the realm of realism, and no one's going to get into it. 100%. Uh, it's... Oh, and, but, like, the the gay married Threpple, both of those guys were straight. And more... Wait, I've seen pictures of Joe Exotic. How the hell is he this charming to people? He's... Don't well, apparent, once you get deeper into the episodes, it seems like it might have been a little bit more because of the meth involved at times, but... Ah, you're right. Meth makes people very charming, apparently. Well, no, it doesn't. But people who have meth when you want meth suddenly feel very charming. And, you know, like, specifically targeting, like, 19-year-olds and... Oh, God. Okay, so it sounds like... It's insane. This might be a fun watch, but go in with a content warning on it. Like, Oh, yeah. And like I said, it's it's amazing entertainment. They're all kind of terrible people. It might be bad that we're viewing it as entertainment, but it's kind of just amazing that this story exists in the first place. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to better say it and like both praise it and warn against it at the same time, but. (laughs) Fair enough. Oh, last recommendation. It is completely different than what you were talking about or not recommendation, but what I've been ingesting. Um, I have been live streaming a out of print book, the Klingon art of war on, uh, the art of war gaming Facebook page, because we're going to do a review episode that I'm actually going to record once we're done here, but the book is long out of print. So this way people can actually like access it. Right. Uh, so if you're interested in listening to me read weird Klingon war proverbs, uh, check that out. And why fun. why wouldn't you be interested in that? Right? Like and it is one of these books that I am super impressed. It I, I have a weakness for books that are written from an in-universe perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh Star Wars does a lot of them, but this one is like uh it, it is written by hold on. It is written by a guy named Keith R. A. DeCandido. But when they describe it, like on the front of the book, it is uh Precepts derived from the teachings of Kalos the Unforgettable, with modern commentary by Kratok, son of Melind, translated into English by Keith R. A. D. Candido. So, like, they are really willing wow. to deal with this. Yeah, they are. The there's a there, there's a final chapter in it that is searching out the historical Kalos. So, not only have they written the writings of this legendary character from a fictional universe. But then tried but to find the fictional the real, history behind yeah, the real history versus the real, the real fictional, fictional history, history versus the myth fictional history of this fictional character in a fictional. It is like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead up in this shit, but about Klingons. That's amazing. Um, it is. 
I, I am super into this because it just brings a level of realism might not be the right word, but of um, legitimacy almost to the these fictional worlds. Mm, mm-hmm. They it, it makes them feel like real complete worlds while like, say, you know, Stargate, which is a science fiction series I love. There isn't that complete feeling that like this could be a real world that exists somewhere feeling to it. That overall sounds pretty amazing. I haven't been checking out the clips myself, but uh, they're still up on there, so I can go back and listen to them. So I'm going to go listen to you read. They're on the Facebook page. We save them. They are ridiculous. Um, It's interesting because I was like, oh, I mean, I know it's not the same thing, but I'll be fine. I've been talking on stuff for a while, but like live reading a book or even just live interacting versus sitting in front of this camera, knowing that you are going to edit the crap out of it and save me from sounding like a madman <laughs> are two wildly different things. Yeah. So it's, it's fun and I enjoy doing it. And I'm going to do more of it, but it is definitely like, Oh, I was not as ready for this as I thought I was. Let's, uh, let's learn some new skills. I haven't had a public read since, I don't know, high school, early college. Never really got past early college. You know, you doing that has made me think that depending on how uh, all these uh, different lockdown orders play out and for how long, maybe I could do something similar on our own page. I just have to come up with something to read. You know, I know a lot of a lot of my friends on Facebook have been reading to each other and I haven't been listening to any of them, but it just it makes me really happy. Um, my dad read to me while I was growing up every night. Really surprisingly late into life. Like, I, you know, most people read to their kids, but usually somewhere around grade school, the kids stop. Mm-hmm. Like, they, I I was, we were done before I was in high school, but, like, not by much. I was somewhere around, like, 13, maybe even 14, when we finally, like, admitted this wasn't a thing that was happening anymore. <laughs> I So I... I really love reading to other people and I really love being read too. So seeing more of that come out, it is a very, people think books are such a solitary thing and they don't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I could probably come up with something to read. I'll I'll brainstorm that idea a little bit more. Uh, Yeah. Well, we can figure that out when we're not reporting to the masses. All right. Uh, Speaking of reporting to the masses, I do have some news from this week. Uh, once okay. again, I'll get the most depressing thing out of the way first. There's not. I tried to pick mostly like I, I didn't go deep into all the different things that are still getting postponed and canceled and stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, there was one kind of big one that actually happened while we were recording last week. Oh shit! Diamond Comic Distributors is no longer taking in new comics into their warehouse. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And is basically um, only shipping off their old stock that they're holding on, holding off on. Or still, they still have, know, like, in their warehouse and shit. I find myself hoping that Diamond either dies a horrible death because of this, or at least gets hurt bad enough that they lose their stranglehold over the comic book industry. Right, so for those of you out there that don't know... Uh, Diamond Comic Distributors is the exclusive distributor of new releases from DC, Marvel, Dark Horse, Image, Dynamite, Boom, and IDW, and a few other smaller publishers. I was going to say, of the, like, I mean, obviously, 
uh, DC and Marvel are the big two. Image is the third biggest. DC, or Dark Horse and IDW play for like fourth and fifth. Uh, Dynamite and a few others are next. Of the top ten comic book companies, you listed like seven of them right there. And they get diamond exclusive control. distribution on news. The new shit. Yeah, they... Diamond has a monopoly on a scale that doesn't exist, I think, anywhere else in publishing. And it has absolutely hurt the comic book industry because Diamond gets to call the shots. They're not, you know, well, we control whether you come in or out, like whether you are putting out comics right now. That gives them an insane amount of power, and it's not healthy. No, it's not healthy for any part of the comic book industry. Um, I think it's part of the reason why we don't really get them in grocery stores anymore. It's why why comics are now solely a like specialty store distributor. And I love my local comic book shop. I love it. It is my favorite place in town. But the industry can't survive just based off these somewhat rickety sales process of a local comic book store. Right. Do you think... Someday, when I am a giant comic book creator which will never happen but let me pretend diamond is going to hear this and be like <laughs> so go fuck yourself Sorry, uh, I interrupted you there well the industry is already the the actual physical publishing side has already been on the decline for years and for, digital's been they never quite recovered from the uh boom of the 90s and the collapse of the 90s mm -hmm. the the uh speculator market and digital's been getting more and more more popular. I read all my new comics on digital. Uh, every mm -hmm. if there's something I want to own, I'll make sure to seek it out. But everything, for the most part, that I pick up new that I just want to make sure I read, it's all digital these days. Uh, partially just because I can carry around a whole library on like one device. But you know, I can't stand digital for some reason. Like I'm just not a fan. Uh, in the same way that I would rather read a like if I'm going to sit down and read a book and not listen to an audiobook, I want the book. I I've had a Kindle or a Nook or whatever the hell it was. I didn't like it. Um, and for some reason, reading smaller amounts of things, uh, news articles, social media, whatever, I can do that on a screen no problem. But when it comes time to like bash out a novel or a comic book, I I I can't get into it on the screen. I I want the the physical copy, which is why my house is just chock fucking full of physical copies. It, of it's true. I've seen it. Um, it's scary. Do you think this might be the first? I mean, it's already been changing that way. But do you think this makes a bigger leap in the industry towards the move towards digital? You know, I'm not sure. Um, people who say that the physical industry is going to die, I think that is wrong. I think it's going to go the way of uh, of records. There's still going to be boutique shops, but... I mean, we're already sort of in a boutique shop kind of setup, so I could see that. But, but what I was going to say is people were like, real books are going to disappear. Real books have not disappeared. Novels are still being pushed out. Mm -hmm. People will always like that physical copy. It's just something in how we are wired. But I think the monthly single issues are going to die not here necessarily 
but within the next 20 years. And I think this might be a big step on that front. All trades. And as all trades. And I don't think it's a bad idea. I think trades tend to sell better. Mm -hmm. Trades are a better value for their price. I mean, one, just they tend to be cheaper. Like uh, if a comic book is sitting at four bucks and a trade is sitting at, you know, 17 bucks for five issues, it is cheaper to buy the trade. Right. And it is going to hold up better. And there's not annoying ads in the middle of it. As, as much as I like have ads that when I like uh, when, when I read through comic books, I had as a kid, I'll see an ad and be like, hey, I remember that. Like, that gives me a good feeling. But I don't really care for ads. They interrupt the flow. Mm-hmm. And a lot of books that I've been doing well for Marvel sell terribly on the monthly market, but do well for trades, especially their uh, newer women led stuff. Um, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Miss Marvel, uh, the, I can't remember the acronym, but the something wasp that's been coming out. I haven't read the book. I've heard very good things. Okay. They sell very well at like scholastic book fairs. The, the trades sell very well. These single issues sell like garbage, <laughs> but, and you know, to wrap this back around to diamond diamond, mostly tracks sales off of monthlies, not the trades. Right. So books will get canceled that do great in trades and will get just rave reviews because the monthlies are selling for crap. I don't get why we're still doing monthlies. And I get that. And I say that as someone who has a chest full of old monthly comic books and there's something about them that makes me happy. And I don't think they'll ever fully go away, but we can do so much better with a 200 page, 150 page, 100 page, whatever. $15 comic book than five part story that you have to fit into five parts to make sure it fits right in the trade. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think physical copies are ever going to go away. I think, uh, the monthlies are going to go away or at the very least monthlies might transition to almost exclusively digital. I've, I've heard a few different people throw out the idea of monthlies being digital with the option of like print to order. Yeah. You know, maybe you pay a premium, but if you have to have that issue, then you can still get it. And comics are starting to figure this out. Um, When DC announced their black label books, uh, which unfortunately went terribly because in the first issue, you saw an outline of Bruce Wayne's penis because I don't know why. And people have been stuck on it ever since. Bruce's Wang. They talked about the... Yes, Bruce's, Bruce Wang's Wang. Um, the Bada Wang. <laughs> uh, the, they were talking about, like, man, trades sell better. Like, why... We don't quite get why we are focusing on, like, everything has to fit this single format. And also, Diamond liked the specific format of how we know trades today. That didn't used to be the only way the comics were released. There was the digest form, which we'll still see in like Archie or there's the premier oversized form, which was like significantly better. Like it was bigger. So you could get more detail. You get a longer book. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I'm sorry. I don't have anything good to say about diamond because they've put a stranglehold on comics that it, it, they are not solely responsible for like 
the the hurt the comics have had, but they've been such a big part of it. Um, this move, the sad part of this is this move, even if it hurts Diamond, by extension it means it's going to further hurt the brick-and-mortar stores that are managing to keep open during all this. Yeah, and I have seen a few things... Um, and some stores or, or some companies are trying to do stuff to help brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Boom is not releasing any digital comics during this time. They'll only do physical copies, which on one hand I appreciate because, you know, I love my local comic book store. But on the other hand, it doesn't. I don't know. It seems just bass backwards to me. Jim Lee, who is the. Uh, I believe the sole publisher of DC Comics now. He's like the head honcho of DC Comics uh, and also just a fantastic artist is doing auctions where people will auction and buy a uh, a, a drawing that he, or not a drawing, a, a, a piece of art that he did and they get to pick the next character that will be like drawn and auctioned off and the money raised through those auctions will be donated to local comic book shops to help Hmm. give to help them get through. That's cool. Um, So yeah, like part of me is like, yeah, suck it diamond. But the other part of me is like, Oh no, they're so entrenched that it hurts everything. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's, that was probably, I have one other smaller bummer that I just want to mention really quick, but we don't nice. we don't have to brood on it too much, but uh, Stuart Gordon did pass this week. Remind me, Stuart Gordon. Uh, Stuart Gordon was the director, and this ties a little bit more into my other podcast. But he directed Reanimator, From Beyond, Castle Freak. But he went kind of across the entire genre. He did things like Robot Jocks, and is the co-creator of the Honey I Shrunk the Robot Kids. Robot Jocks. Yep. I love robot jocks. Uh, and he's the co-creator of it's the awful. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids franchise. Oh, no, I was going to be like, oh, that sucks. Like, I don't, I know nothing about this man, but no, I love, oh, God. Yep. I got to call my buddy Jason now. Um, um sorry. He's, <laughs> uh, he's one of the guys that kind of. There's a lot of people that I'm sure that you are creators that you like that were very influenced by him because he was the kind of guy that made the movies in the early 80s that like you would uh, you'd pass around the VHS to your friends and be like, holy shit, you got to see this like somebody's doing this. And he made it cool to yeah, do it's, weird it's not shit. It's good, but it was crazy and interesting. And we oh, well. I mean, just based off what you said, that man was like the master of weird cult movies. So well done, that man. Right. Good. Like, I'm, I'm sad that he's dead, but that's a great life and legacy to have. And I think that's what I try to, like, focus on when I read about this creator dying, that creator dying. It's like, yep, yeah, I'm sad and I get to be sad. But let's just really appreciate his life in, as well as being sad about his death, their death. Well, and I... I especially kind of wanted to bring it up because every time I sit down here and record, I have reanimator inspired art just like staring at me from the wall. So, yeah, yeah, I know that one. OK, yeah. Yeah. It's when you're when you actually get to be here, it's kind of right by your head ish. <laughs> yeah, it's it stares at me. Um. Uh, I think I think everything else I have is a bit funnier, though. Good. Thank 
God, I need all the good I can get these days. So, we talked about Pokemon recently, and I mentioned I didn't watch that anime as much because I was too busy watching Digimon Adventure. Oh, the new Digimon is coming out. Uh, the new come out. the new Digimon movie is coming out very soon, and that brings an end to what was started in like 1999, something like that. I mean, we'll see if it stays the end of what started in 1999. Well, like, that's what my news uh, actually is. They've already announced the reboot, and I'm actually kind of stoked for this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this one is simply Digimon Adventure colon, and the colon is to differentiate it from the original Digimon Adventure. Okay, you know what? Bring it on. Um, about five or six years ago, I tried to rewatch the original Digimon and had a moment of like, you know, I might be too old for this. Which is okay. That's not a bad thing. Well, I, um, I think, how, how far into it did you get? Not far. Because Digimon's another one of those shows that as it went on, it didn't it didn't grow up as much as something like uh, Young Justice did. But as the seasons went on, it grew up, and they started tackling yeah, and- a lot darker stuff. They started tackling like real world uh, social issues. The most recent stuff too is supposed to be pretty uh, much more mature than. The, you know, than the stuff that we watched as a little kid. Because mm-hmm. I, I watched it for, I, I don't know how long, but uh, quite a while. Um, yeah, and I, I watched our, a couple seasons worth. Uh, the card season was where I started to fall out. Mm. But even then, I watched most of that. Like Normally, I would tell you when uh, to watch a trailer. You you don't really have to see this first trailer. There's literally nothing you've you've not seen before. The, the premise seems to be pretty much the exact same thing, except everything's just been updated. Oh, cool. So, same characters and stuff? Yeah, or? same characters and stuff. Uh, there might be minor changes that they haven't shown that weren't in the trailer yet, but the biggest things are like um, the, uh, the fucking digivices are a lot more like cell phones. Uh, the digital world itself is a lot more uh abstract than before it's not like they're just getting thrown into this kind of fantasy setting you know i was on etsy the other day and they had digivices and the crests of like you know courage etc etc and damn i was tempted by some really useful or useless jangle there like in no world do i actually need a digivice but i absolutely wanted it (laughs) But it kind of just looks like the same thing, just rebooted, updated for modern uh, and the way that we sort of think of digital now and seems to be promising from the outset to be not like super mature, but the the little bit more mature and a little bit more serious tone that the series grew into. Yeah, well, that should be fun. Um, I'm here waiting for my mature and serious Monster Rancher reboot, but... Uh... <laughs> Oh, that'd be pretty great. I just saw a, I saw a video today that was the actress who plays Ash Ketchum in the modern Pokemon. Okay. Talking through how she, and like showing some of how she um, voice acts Ash 
from the like adapting from the original Japanese. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting. Like matching lip flaps and stuff. Yeah, and like how a lot of times the the, they they go through these so fast that a lot of times the um, the script was finished like the night before. So she's almost never seen the script before she starts recording. Hmm. So it's like cold readings for everything and like how she'll they'll watch it in the Japanese and then her script editor who she described as like a DM will tell her kind of like here's what I need because she does it completely alone none of the other voice actors are in the room she doesn't actually hear any of that unless she watches like the finished episode wow and it sounded really stressful but it was a really fascinating way and it, it was interesting because it's easy to write off you know Pokemon Digimon whatever as goofy product placement shows because they are right but like the the real the seriousness that the actors put into it put into the roles that yeah that it might be these weird goofy cartoons and stuff but they are still professionals doing the best job that they're able yeah uh so i might have to check that out myself but i love voice actor stuff so yes that's super it oh so this is neat Skype auditions, auditions, at least talks, have been going on uh, for George Miller trying to cast for Furiosa, a prequel to Mad Max Fury Road, which he plans to hopefully start shooting next year. I'd heard that he had more plans for Mad Max films. I didn't know he was doing a prequel. Uh, He's been talking to, for sure, he's had talks with Anya Taylor-Joy of New Mutants and The Witch uh, about possibly playing a younger Furiosa. Is that Ilyana Rasputin? Yes. Interesting. Uh, Um, I would love more Mad Max, just like Mad Max and Furiosa, like post-Fury Road. But Fury Road was a fucking accomplishment, so I'm willing to give him a shot in whatever he wants to do. Yeah, I mean... George Miller's earned my my trust forever with Fury Road, so whatever the fuck he wants to do. Prequel, sequel, reboot, I don't give a fuck. Like, just give the man his money and let him make a movie. God, now I want to watch Fury Road. Right? Oh, I've been hankering for it again re- lately. It's one of the few DVDs that I've actually bought in the last several years. I don't, no. I don't buy DVDs much anymore, but uh, we picked that one up. Uh, sitting in front of me. It's right next to Wizards. Yay! <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so, a casting sheet for season three of Titans has hinted that we might be getting uh, Danny Chase, Phantasm. Okay. That's about all I got. Danny Chase is a dick. <laughs> <laughs> like, even... Even the creators admit that like they added him in because he the the Titans had aged up a bit. They weren't really teens anymore. Right. So he they they added a teen character in and he is just the worst. He's this really obnoxious kid that doesn't even initially have a like superhero identity. And I. It's kind of like Marvin and Wendy from Super Friends, like just these random kids that don't have superhero identities only work in very, very specific situations. And I'm only willing to give very specific situations because that Plastic Man comic I was just talking about had one where it worked. Okay. But like 
Marvin and Wendy hanging out with the Justice League or Danny Chase hanging out with the Titans was just obnoxious. Like, just get rid of the kid. Um, that said, Phantasm looked kind of cool. <laughs> Although, if we're going to talk about a Phantasm, just... Billy Zane. Mask of the Phantasm. Oh, that too. But, uh, <laughs> no, I was going to say Batman Mask of the Phantasm. The, and have what was basically the Reaper from Batman Year Two, like that amazing... Oh, wait, that was the Phantom. I fucked up. Didn't... My bad. Oh, yeah. Ooh, we should do an episode on that movie. Yeah. I think I've talked about doing the Phantom before. Oh, Phantasm's tall man. Oh, Angus man. Scrim. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so, I don't know. I mean, I haven't watched season two. I never finished season one. Titans was too grimdark tryhard for me, but I heard that it improved dramatically. Bringing in him doesn't... It doesn't do anything for me. But I'm, and it's not making me be like, oh, I will never watch this show now. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Maybe they'll maybe they'll bring something in that will make me watch again, too. Because I watched it all season one. I liked it. I was kind of excited for season two, but I've still never watched it yet. I I enjoyed it. It was the weird thing. Like I when I first because I watched most of the season in one sitting because I was sick one day. Mm-hmm. And like the first two episodes, my friend who had recommended it to me, I'm sending him text being like, this is dog shit. What's wrong with you? And then like a few episodes in, I was starting to feel it. I was starting to go. And then I watched all the episodes that were out at the time and I just never got <laughs> back to it. Yeah. And anytime I was like, I should dive in. I'm like, oh, God, but it's so it's, it's so try hard. Like I just it, it was hard to get that momentum going to like get back into the groove of it. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm missing that moment of myself. I guess that's what it comes down to. Uh, so do you need even more to potentially watch as we're all stuck inside? Because Hasbro wants to help you out. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I don't, but tell me anyways. Hasbro has put 15 episodes of the G.I. Joe cartoon up on YouTube for people to binge. Okay, so that one's not for me, <laughs> but that's awesome, and you should, like, people should enjoy. Yeah. Uh, on that s- same note, Patrick Stewart convinced CBS to put up uh, all of season one of Star Trek Picard. Right, which I need to watch now. For free? Yeah, I've only seen the first episode still. I I really enjoyed it. I heard that mid-season it's a little slow, but it's one of those, like... 10 episodes, one story, one movie kind of shows, you know, Daredevil, Luke Cage, any kind of like streaming show anymore. And the middle episodes are almost always a little slow on that one, on that kind. Mm -hmm. I miss one-offs. I think that's part of the reason why I enjoyed Mandalorian as much, because there were episodes that tied into the larger story, but were also just, and now we're going to have an adventure. Right. Uh, But I hear it's great. And... You know how you said George Miller has earned your respect forever? Patrick Stewart earned that Mm -hmm. when I was like four. Right. Even in really terrible fucking things Patrick Stewart's been in. And he's been in some really bad things. I'm not even as big of a... I'm not even as big of a fan as you, and I'll agree completely to that, so... No matter what he's in, he is a tour de force. Even that weird YouTube video where he's like high in a treehouse with like his girlfriend... (laughs) <laughs> it's amazing I l- it, it is perfection <laughs> um, it's terrible I'm, but uh, so 
I, I like that people are going, oh, hey, we should give people free things while they're all stuck and poor mm-hmm. and they will remember us later. Like on one hand, it's kind of a cheap cash grab. And on the other hand, it is a pretty legitimate like sharing of like sign of caring during this time where everyone's really stressed out. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Don Cheadle has been confirmed to be the bad guy in Space Jam 2. We don't know who the bad guy is other than it's Don Cheadle. Who is who is the sports guy in the second Space Jam? Because I'm assuming it's not Michael Jordan again. I think it's supposed to be LeBron James. Okay. I'm not positive on that. I kind of um uh, I kinda don't see the need for a Space Jam sequel. So I haven't been keeping the closest the of, the of attention. But I do really like the Looney Tunes, so if they put out a Space Jam sequel, I'm probably going to watch it, so... I miss classic Looney Tunes shorts. And I get why they don't really happen anymore, because classic Looney Tunes shorts tended to be either ridiculously violent or ridiculously racist, and sometimes both. (laughs) But there was also some really good, really brilliant things happening in it. Uh... I haven't really super enjoyed any Looney Tunes thing made post, I don't know, 1990. But at the same time, sure, bring it on. So many people remember Space Jam so fondly. I saw it once as a kid. Like, I saw it in theaters and never saw it again. So I guess if it makes people happy. This movie sounds absolutely insane. Uh, yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll probably watch just to for the tiny go-go dodo in the background somewhere. Cause I fucking love go-go dodo. So yeah, just this whole thing. I'm not sure if it's a horror show or amazing, but it, the answer is probably yes to both, <laughs> but I, I am fascinated. That's all I am. Huh? Uh, this is just some news that like my own personal, personal nerdery compels me to have to, to pipe up on because it makes me well, even happier. Time, so yeah, even happier than I was before. Uh, I talked before about how Robert Rodriguez is directing an episode of season two of The Mandalorian, and I'm yeah. I'm a giant Bob Rod fan. Apparently, on that episode, his his DP, his cinematographer, whatever, uh, I'm not sure what the exact title was, but I know that he was doing some of the camera work. Is Dave Klein? Dave Klein is known. Nowadays, for doing the Deadwood movie, he did like 19 episodes of True Blood. He did like 38 episodes of Homeland. He also did all of Kevin Smith's movies from Clerks through Red State, except for Dogma. Okay, so this guy is a professional. Like, he is clearly very good at what he does, whatever it is that he does. But somehow he got his fucking start on Clerks. This professional cameraman got his start on a movie where the camera pretty much doesn't move. You know. And is now working. Everyone starts somewhere. And came up working with one of my favorite directors and is now working with another one of my favorite directors on one of my favorite properties. So I've been happy as a fucking pig and shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, I, I couldn't remember the name of the voice actress of Ahsoka last week and I wanted to drop it today while we were talking about it because 
as I said, she's amazing. And she's not just a voice actor. She's a, a live actor. She sounds very sad that she's not going to play Ahsoka. But, like, supportive. Uh, her name is Ashley Eckstein. Mm-hmm. Ah, there's, she's great. Well, and I think so, on that on that note, I want to quickly say that I think I made it sound like it was only Kevin Smith's idea that, like, I think he got the idea from Rosario because she's been very outspoken about wanting to play Ahsoka because she is a gigantic nerd. So, yeah, that's that's awesome. And as I said, I'm sure it will be good. I I I, I trust Rosario Dawson quite a bit. I, I realized while I was listening to last to the last episode today before we recorded this that I had not given the, her name and uh, Ashley Eckstein absolutely deserves recognition for all she's done to make Ahsoka the character that she is that she's important enough for Rosario Dawson to like take on this role for sure uh, and I got one last piece of news another thing to watch on YouTube all dropped that. I actually thought had been put out and I had just not watched it. Turns out it was never put mm-hmm. out until this last week. Uh, all of Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe is out. Oh, really? Wait, that was not out before now? Uh, apparently there was some rights issues that happened uh, bet- because we ju- the Bloodshot movie just came out, but Bloodshot wasn't the only Valiant universe property being made into a movie at the time. I believe they're trying to make Harbinger into a movie as well. They're obsessed with Harbinger and they're shitty knockoff X-Men. I don't get why that's the property they keep going for. But while they were making or right after uh, Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe was made and in right in the time that they were going to put it out, Bloodshot got licensed by Sony rather than Paramount, where the rest of the Valiant properties are. Hmm, okay. Um, yeah, there's some weird uh, right stuff, some behind-the-scenes stuff going on with Valiant. One of the guys who helped relaunch Valiant sounds like he's not in it anymore, but he is involved with the Bloodshot movie. I don't know what's... I, I, I haven't had the energy to, like, research the behind the scenes drama going on at Valiant Entertainment. Right. And well supposedly Bloodshot's supposed to be like the start of the Valiant universe, but it was put out by Sony and Paramount has the rest of the characters. So nobody knows if they're going to still try to make a universe and then Bloodshot would be basically like Spider Man to the MCU. Or what the fuck's gonna happen? Yeah. Uh, the little I heard, it sounded like if there's a Valiant Universe, Bloodshot's probably not going to be involved. Um, Which, big whoop. Yeah, I don't, I mean, uh, of all the Valiant characters I'm excited about, I'm way more excited to see, you know, Exo Manowar or Archer and Armstrong or I'd say Quantum and Woody, but you could not do them in a movie probably and have it work. It's they're they're a little raunchy. Mm. The Eternal Warrior. Uh, like, uh, Bloodshot is not Valiant's strongest property, so it's not one that... Like, I, I want us, and who knows if it's out now, since we're all fucking quarantined, but I would love for us to, like, sit down and watch that movie and then immediately do a review episode. Oh, yeah, me too. 
I want to see it. But I'm also super excited to probably end up watching this Ninjak versus the Valiant Universe, uh, if only for Jason David Frank being Bloodshot. <laughs> yeah, the fucking... Oh, God. Bloodshot's gone up in the world when they're like, yeah, we got the Green Power Ranger to play him. Now they're like, we got Vin Diesel to play him. Like, oh, shit, boy. <laughs> and nothing against Jason David Frank. Okay, a little bit. He kind of seems like an asshole. I'm sorry. You might be a very nice man, Mr. Frank. Um, uh, but I also really liked Michael Rowe as Deadshot on Flash and Arrow, and he's Ninjak, so. Yeah, that alone makes me want to watch it. Like, that is... That guy's a little like tryhard, but that's okay because he's playing Ninjak, so eh, you know. <laughs> it, tryhard can work. Tryhard can be a lot of fun. Uh, overall, I'm excited. It's finally out. I don't know what kind of quality it is. I just have a feeling it's going to be stupidly entertaining. Plus, I'll probably get to see my boy Shadow Man in it, so. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think of Shadow Man. Well, I love me some Shadow Man. Oh, my boy. Uh, that's all I got for the news, though. Sweet. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then we will come back to discuss the Discworld, and specifically, Guards, Guards. Guards! So Discworld is probably my my newest of my big nerd obsessions. Okay. I say that I've been reading it mostly listening to it. I don't think I've ever actually sat down and read a Discworld book, but I've got the audiobook for so many of them. But, like, you know, Star Wars I've been watching since I was a little kid. Star Trek has been on literally as long as I can remember. Pokemon I got into when I was, like, eight. Uh, Discworld, I was almost 30 by the time I first read it, even after it had been recommended to me for almost a decade before that point. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of... It's interesting and exciting to talk about this one. I don't have it as a... Uh, I, I don't have the, like, childish memories of it. Right. I... That I do with a lot of other stuff. Yeah, I myself didn't get didn't get into any Discworld till mid-20s. But even then, yes. my actual reading of them has not kept up with my enthusiasm for them when I actually do read them. In in the amount of years it's been since I started reading Discworld, I've probably only actually averaged one a year of getting in new ones, but of the like six I've read, I have actually reread them all uh, about three times other than this one. Since this is my first time reading Guards Guards for me. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting for me. Guards Guards was my second Discworld book. My first one was way far ahead in Monsters Regiment, which is, I don't know, somewhere in like the 30s Discworld wise. Mm -hmm. And Vimes is actually a character in that one. Vimes, who's like the main character of this, but unrecognizable. I had to listen to it. I had to listen to Monsters Regiment a second time to realize, oh, holy shit, I've seen this character before. Discworld doesn't have to be read in order to still work. Uh, but it's neat if you do read it in order because you get to notice how the things change. Yeah, and that's what's so fascinating to me of characters that have that I'll like they'll bring them up in whatever, you know, book 20 or something that I read. And then I go back to an earlier one and like, 
holy shit, that character was a major part of an earlier book and it doesn't come up because it's not important. But Terry Pratchett has this ability to reuse characters eternally in this 42 book series that has like six other different series within the series. <laughs> That's it, it, It's just the Discworld is him telling the stories of this world as opposed to, you know, the the Game of Thrones books where it is this specific story saga being told yeah and what's interesting about guards guards it is i want to say the it's like the eighth or the ninth discworld book I think. it's the eighth and it's the the first from the watch yeah and it's the first watch book and it it changes the discworld in a really dramatic fashion like before before these hold up i'm going to real quick look up the the bibliography of these before we get go ahead before we get too far away from it i just want to throw out a quick aside that uh you not being able to do digital comics i i i can't do audiobooks you know it's only within the last couple of years that i've been able to start doing them i when i'm listening uh, to audio i zone out too much that's like my my meditation me time even when i'm listening to like podcasts and stuff and i just i don't get enough out of books that way oh that's fair I uh, I have found it helps because I like background noise when I'm making things. Mm. And it's really nice for that. When I'm doing stuff, you know, with my hands that requires very little thought, an audiobook is just a lifesaver for me at that point. So, yeah. Um, so I actually ended up... The other thing I ingested this weekend was sitting down and, and physically reading every, every word of this book. <laughs> yeah. I listened to the audiobook again. This is like the second time in 2020 that I've listened to this audiobook. Uh, and it wasn't going to be, but then we were like, oh, let's do Guards, Guards. And suddenly I'm like, well, okay, I should. The The books that had come out before were The Color of Magic, The Light Fantastic, Equal Rights, Mort, Sorcery, Weird Sisters, and Pyramids. So previous to this, um, I have read uh, In Order Up to Sorcery. Of those, I have read... Oh God, I read part of the Light Fantastic before I realized that the Color of Magic was like part one of that story. Um, we're partway through Equal Rights. We've read Mort. Uh, CC and I tend to listen to these together, so I say we here. But all of these stories up to this point had been heavy magic stories. Like all of these either followed Rincewind the Wizard or the Witches or Death had been a major character. Uh, even Pyramids heavily involves like uh, they call it the Jelly Baby, but it's Egypt without saying Egypt. Mm -hmm. And it involved like gods and reincarnation and heavy magical concepts. And part of what I like about Guards Guards is it is for a book that is a fantasy book about dragons and a book that is a parody of fantasy. And one of the earliest ones where he starts really doing social commentary on like a major scale of the book, it is a very down to earth book. Right, it's a lot of normal people having to deal with the fallout of magic. Mm-hmm. And it introduces a lot of characters that appear constantly. Before we get to that, let's touch on what the Discworld is. Okay. The You know what? You you start with it. Give, give me your quick description of the Discworld. Oh, God. Uh, like a description of the Discworld? Uh <laughs> Discworld. Up to you. Just so I could describe the Discworld physically, which you already kind of started to do at the very beginning of this pod, but 
I love the description. It's so good. But more specifically, Discworld is a fantasy realm with a very heavy magic field throughout it that manifests itself in a, a number of absurd ways, it seems. I don't know how to super describe it because it's the world seems mostly to be based on uh, Terry Pratchett's comedic logic <laughs> and yeah, and um, based on subverting or sometimes fully embracing t- uh, to the point of ridiculousness um, major fantasy tropes. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this when I don't remember what, what the book was called, but you recommended a book a couple of weeks ago where people were kind of aware of the fantasy tropes. That is very much a thing in, on the disc. Belief is a major, major power structure. So if enough people believe things, it becomes true, uh, at least to an extent. And it's also the um, sort of world where ridiculous things happen, like the the magic field... Uh, actually inhibits the flow of light, so light moves slower on the disc and a little bit heavier and can even like collect in puddles to get sucked up from the whatever it's when the sun goes it, down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's bizarre. It is the the physical aspect of the world as we said is there is a giant turtle flying through space, great Atuin, and on top of the turtle's back are four elephants, and on top of the four elephants is a flat disc, and that's the disc world. Uh, later on, they talk about there was originally a fifth elephant, but it became disconnected, flew, like, orbited around the disc for a while, and then crashed into it. And so because of this, there's stuff like fat deposits, so, like, dwarves are actually legitimately mining fat from the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that none of that is that important to this part, but it's just such this. I want to know how Terry Pratchett's mind worked because it's so bizarre, but it all makes a form of sense and it all connects. Um, and it's so easy to write the disc world off when describing it as a comedy because it is, it is just breathtakingly funny the, at times. The, especially but the early books are pure fantasy parody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not and even, just fantasy parody. It's good fantasy in its own right. Right. Um, and that, I mean, for me, that's what makes a good parody is it should make fun of what it itself is being. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, it becomes satire. But most of the comedy is still mined from at least invoking the thoughts of fantasy tropes. Well, and the just the writing style of it is very different from what we see in a lot of stuff. There are almost never chapters. There's one or two books that have actual chapters and I actually found it really disconcerting. <laughs> um, and he does little like addendums all the time. Like, you know, that footnotes little, like, one asterisk and then footnotes. Thank you. That's the word. And sometimes there's footnotes uh, to footnotes. And, and so he'll like have his flow and then just a random descriptor. It's like, Isaac Asimov used footnotes all the time, but Terry Pratchett turned footnotes into an art form. Absolutely. As I said, I, I have been so obsessed. I was falling asleep to listening to the the uh, Discworld a lot lately because it's just as weird and bizarre as it is. There's something very relaxing about it at the same time, at least to me. Uh, um, what what 
what what got you to read your first one? What? Uh, Cece recommended them to me for years. She picked up Monstrous Regiments, and she spent several years telling me, you need to read Monstrous Regiments. And I'm like, yeah, I'll totally get to it. You know, in that kind of asshole way that when someone recommends something to you, you're like, oh, sure, I will. Even if you mean it, like, it's hard to sometimes dive in. <laughs> um, and then I picked up the audiobook finally and was like, holy shit, this is good. She's like, I've been fucking telling you. <laughs> um... And that led to Guards, Guards, and then Guards, Guards led to all of the, we, we listened to all of the City Watch books in order, and then we spread off to, I think we listened to Mort next, and Hog uh, Hogfather, which is his Christmas book, which is just breathtakingly funny <laughs> and good. Um, the Moist von Lipvig books, which is about a like con man on the Discworld. Hmm. Uh, it, it's every time that I think I understand how the disc works, we check out a new book or like a new series of stories. We've just started the witches ones. And again, it's completely different, but still very much the disc. Uh, as I said, we're partway through equal rights right now, which is about witches and wizards and how that whole thing works. I really like Equal Rights and, and Mort since you mentioned good. it. Once again, I haven't Mort read. So funny. I still haven't read as much disc as I would like to, and that I am going to. I just there's so much shit. There's so much shit. One thing we keep talking about is someday we have realized that we're going to be out of Terry Pratchett to read, mm -hmm. and that thought makes me want to cry. Like people who haven't read Discworld, Terry Pratchett also helped write, or was a co-writer on um, Good Omens with Neil Gaiman. Uh, so, which was my introduction. I read yeah. uh, Color of Magic because I read Good Omens for the first time, and then I continued to read it for like six more times and was like, okay, so now I should probably check out both of these authors separately. Holy shit, that's a lot of books. Where do I start? I guess the beginning's a good place. I I don't know if I had read Good Omens first or Monsters Regiment first. Uh, good Omens is one of CeCe's favorite books. So it was... Uh, and yeah, again, when I say read in all of these, I, I let's be honest, I mean the audiobook. So I have listened, <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, no, um, yeah, no, that's good. But, okay, that's good. So that's fine. <laughs> that's, that's good. It's fine. Yeah, I, I will totally accept that. It's fine and wish that I read more. But who has time in the day? Okay. Anyway, but so that's guards, the disc. Guards, 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 guards. Uh, guards, guards is fun because it is all of these things we talked about, and it is also a parody of cop dramas at the same time, and it is also a cop drama at the same time, like. Whoever would have done a a cop story, a like CSI or NCIS in the fucking fantasy world? Like, I didn't know I needed that until I read it and was like, "This is such a natural pairing." And I didn't, uh, I didn't quite realize it was a parody of necessarily that it was a cop drama until Vimes had one of those moments where he put together some facts out of some disparate things that were just said to him. And I'm like, you motherfucker. I see what you did. Yeah, oh my God. I see what you did. You housed that bitch. That was a procedural uh, move. At, <laughs> yeah. At one time, 
um, because we've talked about how guards guards how the the city watch is getting a TV show based off of them. At one time, it was going to be in continuity with the books when Terry was still alive. And the idea was if, like, someone died in the TV show, they wouldn't appear in the books anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, it would be a combined... That's kind of funny. Like, like, it'd be a combined universe. And it never happened, and I imagine that would have been a nightmare to manage. Right. But I, I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, but you've mentioned Vimes. We start this book off... I, th- I think the very first part of the book is Vimes drunk in a gutter. I I was surprised at how much this book used the dragon imagery to also be chasing the dragon and uh, sort of touched on themes of addiction. Yeah, Vimes is a drunk uh, and it is... Not necessarily a charming drunk. When he's drunk, he's not a pleasant person to be around. And a lot of times, I think if uh, you had encountered a drunk in earlier Discworld books, they would have been like a rascally drunk, like a fun drunk. Vimes is is drinking to survive. Like he is drinking because he has, in his own words... uh, too much of a habit of speaking his mind and getting himself in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. And we find out that Vimes is, th- we don't find this out immediately, but that he is the captain of the night watch. So he's the, you know, the night shift of the city guard of a town that has no use for the city watch. That has no use for cops. <laughs> Not just a uh, town, crime- the city. Of Ankh-Morpork. Ankh-Morpork, the, the greatest and dirtiest city on the disc. And when when you realize, especially in the books where the series is more satire, but is always obviously London. Um, it's apparently not. It's not. He's He's talked about it. I don't remember what city it is. A lot of people think London, and I think London shines through there because like, they talk about the River Ankh. And it really heavily matches what the River Thames was like in Victorian London. Right. But yeah, it is. it has heavy London vibes. Uh, Pratchett wrote another book called Dodger that takes place in Victorian London. And you could change just a few things and it would have... Been onk. It would have fit perfectly. So, like, he says it's not London, but it's, it's London. sort of London. I don't care if he says it's not <laughs> London. I, I'm sorry, Terry Pratchett, but you made... You're wrong. You're You're not wrong often, but you're wrong here. Because even, I don't know, even if it's it's this, like, conglomerated city of just uh, fantasy medieval tropes, he's leaning on all the tropes from England, and that all combines Mm -hmm. to make a city that is basically just London, whether he wants to admit it or not, so... Yeah, these books are extremely British. We should get that out there. Mm. I mean, Terry Pratchett's the guy that was knighted by the Queen and made himself a sword out of a meteorite for it. Like, Which is amazing. He's about the most British fantasy man you could possibly have, but he's that with a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, this is the Ankh-Morpork is the city where the Thieves Guild, which is a classic fantasy trope, has been legalized and is part of government ordinance. Yeah, they get to do like a certain amount of, of thieving and all the businesses and if, sort of 
factor if that you in. Pay them a per diem, you won't get robbed. Like oh yeah, the uh, ensuer ants. Yeah, the ensuer ants. Uh, so in this world where they talk about it, the thieves are more effective at stopping crime than the city watches because all the thieves have to do is not go to work that day. Uh, who has time for a city guard? Who has time for especially the night watch? So we find the world's most pathetic night watch. Uh, but before we dive too much more into them, I do th- we do have to absolutely talk about one of the opening scenes where he is just endlessly making fun of secret societies. Oh my god. Yeah, that was amazing. Did I? I, I actually highlighted a couple sections in this, but... Uh, uh, that is not it, it one of the starts, sections I did, though, so never mind. Uh, it, it starts with, you know, a, a man in a hood going up to a door as it rains and all this like classic being run really seriously uh, secret society stuff. And they're going back and forth on these like ridiculously long passwords and it stops like the passwords shift halfway through. And he's like, wait, what? Like, no, the, the caged whale should something, something, something. And he's like, what? Oh, you want the elong- elongated brotherhood of Ebon Knight. We're the Ebon brotherhood of evil Knight, or right. something like that. Like, oh, you need two doors down. It, it's the the uh, people's liberation front of Judea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I never even thought about that before. But yeah, it's straight out of Life of Brian. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, Speaking of amazing British comedy. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, all of these. Ankmore Park, which is a world where or is the city where everything happens on a on the disc world where everything is possible and real, has so many secret societies. And they're like they deal with stuff like renting out the rooms and being an, uh, and the landlords being annoyed because they don't pick up after themselves. And like, oh, we can't meet on Thursdays because that's the day that the art club comes in and paints naked ladies. <laughs> and it, it, it's just this weird touch of like realistic surrealism almost like or surreal realism right the uh, the realism of having to deal with competing schedules but the surrealism of what is your competition of yeah and these guys decide or their leader decides who is just he's found the like shittiest possible members to make a secret society but that makes them super easy to manipulate uh, and he's going to summon dragons. Because dragons, even on the Discworld, are currently legendary. Yeah, and it turns out that there's, like, the, the classic dragons, and then there is dragons how we have, and they're basically, like, rats or dogs or something. They're they're tiny, like, I think they say the biggest one's, like, three feet or something like that. Yeah, four little swamp uh, dragons. They're... And the, and the swamp dragons are pets. Yeah. Uh, and you automatically build more world building in really interesting ways really quickly. Um, oh, and we mentioned this was like uh, a cop novel and shit, like a crime drama. Mix in a critique of show dog breeding with the swamp dragons. Oh, yeah. It is. It, it's. I'm not sure if it's a critique or a love affair at the same time. Like. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's just it's so much. Um, but then, so we have Vimes drunk in the gutter and his really useless watch. Uh, and then we have a 
plot to bring the kings back by summoning dragons and like overthrowing the patrician, who is the tyrannical head of government, but not a king. Like there's the the difference is very minimal, but very important to the people of Ankh-Morpork. Right. Like he's the complete tyrant dictator, but he's not a king. He is of the people, not royalty. And then to, to add all the more rocks, uh, all, all the more mess with this, you enter Carrot Iron Foundation. Carrot is amazing. I, in general, tend to Carrot. love Discworld, like, main-ish characters anyway. Mm-hmm. And Carrot is already way up there for me. I dug Carrot a lot. Uh, Carrot is a human raised by dwarves who just found out that he was human at the very beginning of this novel. He just thought that he was a really tall dwarf. And actually throughout the rest of the books, he continues to refer to himself as a dwarf. He is a a dwarf that happened to be born human. Like he keeps with their traditions and all of that stuff. Um, Who is sent to Ankh-Morpork after he has literally grown too tall to live in the dwarf mines. Um, uh, they reveal in a later book that his dwarfish name translates to headbanger. <laughs> you're you're missing out on one of the other things he is. He's also the uh-huh. rightful heir to the throne. Yes. Which is... And they talk about that. They, they hint at that in this book. Uh, they really... It comes up a lot more in later novels. The funny thing is, is the way it's hinted at is a couple characters do hint at it, especially towards the later and like the last act basically mm-hmm. but it's mostly hinted at a meta level just through uh pratchett's descriptions and uh hinting at certain tropes yeah people will talk about the classic heroes and it matches carrot to a t throughout this entire thing uh and he is every bit the classic hero that's come into town during times of crisis to come save stuff. But it doesn't really work because it, you know, turns out that life is not a fairy tale, even on a place like the Discworld. Where it kind of is a fairy so, tale, but it's not. Where it kind of is a fairy tale. Uh, so it, it, Carrot throws everything into absolute chaos by showing up and being this extremely honest, extremely literal also, because dwarves do not understand the concept of metaphor and have like no sense of humor, which is also awesome. And he, he just comes into Ankh-Morpork like a wrecking ball by being everything that a guard is supposed to be. He has a book that is the law and ordinances of Ankh-Morpork and he knows it like front to back. And anytime he encounters someone breaking the law, which is almost every time he talks to someone in this book, he like tries to call them out on it. Uh, his first day, he, uh, walks into the thieves guild and arrests the head of the thieves guild, the, the chief thief. And everyone's like, wait, you did what? And he's like, well, he's a thief. They're like, well, yeah. What are you supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, yeah, why did you arrest him? He's like, he's a thief. He ends up sleeping at a brothel and like courting a prostitute who he does not realize is a prostitute. Uh, Do you even, I mean, I don't think it's till the very end that he even realizes that it's a brothel, right? Does he ever realize it in this book? 
he I think never there's really a, talks about it. I feel like there's a passage towards the end where he kind of realizes, or it's hinted at that he yeah. knows what it is now. But by the end, he has become much more aware of how the city works. Because at the beginning, he doesn't really like it there. And then, like, I think his final line is, like, I am happy as a person can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really, he he is changed by the city, and he changes the city over the course of this story. Uh, and he is completely thrown by all of the chaos of all of the characters that is Ankh-Morpork. And a lot of these characters first appear in this book and lay, are, become absolutely essential parts of Ankh-Morpork. Uh... Mr. Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler appears in almost every book after this, or at least all of the guard books and a lot of like major Ankh Morpork books. He is a hold up purveyor the, of things. At the very end, the fucking monks sending off the shipment to him had me fucking rolling. Yeah, uh, uh, Mr. CMOT Dibbler, <laughs> and they eventually do reveal his whole name, and it is. His the initial C M O T is actually real. It's just been changed to cut me own throat. That's amazing too. Uh, which is he uh, he sells things that's so cheap that it's cutting his own throat. Is oh, the cut me own throat. Uh, <laughs> he, he throughout the book he keeps offering these like anti dragon creams and stuff, and he's like they were made by some monks up on top of a mountain, and you're like all right whatever you bullshit artist, and then one of the final scenes is him revealing or is a bunch of monks. Sending more of this cream down the mountain to Mr. CMOT, CMOT Dibbler being like, what does he do with all of this stuff? Oh, yeah, that genius. Uh, and he sells sausages on a bun made of real pig. And they're like, what, you mean pork? And he goes, no, I mean pig. Like it is all of the pieces of it is the pieces of sausage of pig that don't go into normal sausages, even like yeah, it's, it's pig cooler described as like the. The, the worst food on earth, yet somehow he continues to, like, thrive, really, in Ankh-Morpork. Uh, we meet the other members of the Night Watch. Um, we've already met Vimes and Carrot, but uh, Sergeant Colon, who is the, eight, the archetypical fat old sergeant who is just... He's been there so long that he's just kind of coasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... My one of my all time favorites of the disc, uh, CW Sense J Knobs. Oh, Nobby, also known as Nobby Knobs, who is a in a later book described as uh, excommunicated from the human race for shoving. <laughs> he, he's human, but he is like every bad habit in life given form. He's He's a cop, but he's completely willing to rob people at the moment's notice. He routinely breaks into stuff. Anytime he gets a chance, he, you know, is kicking people in the nuts because it's the safest way to take someone down. Preferably when they're already on the floor. Like the entire time Um, I knew he was human, but in my head, I have a hard time picturing him as anything other than a severely emaciated, stereotypical dwarf. I mean, not dwarf, goblin. Yeah, he gets more involved with the goblins later on because goblins become a part really late in the Discworld books. I think Snuff, which is one of the final Discworld books, is where they really start appearing. But yeah, he he is very goblin-esque the whole time. He is he is everything about the common man in like these classic stories, uh, given a single form. 
And Carrot has entered into this world of nothing is what he expects it to be. And everyone keeps telling him things that his extremely literal mind can't accept. And he pops up being like the ultimate guard and really everything that when they talk about a hero, that's what Carrot's doing and showing how poorly it works in the modern day. Yeah. Um, Although sometimes, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work, but he doesn't exactly like get defeated in any way. Like he still beats everyone up and tries to put him under arrest, which is almost the the funny part too, because he's getting his job done. He's just being stifled by the system. Yeah. Uh, Nobby takes him to a, a bar. Uh, the, the mended drum or the mended drum, which appears in a lot of, uh, in a lot of books. Uh, and he tries to arrest the head of the mended drum for selling alcohol after a certain time. And this is the bar where like, all of the barbarians and the heroes and the dwarves and the trolls and the like every reprobate character appears, including the librarian. I I was going to say there's a lot of new additions to Discworld in this book. My favorite part of almost any time he ever appears is the librarian. So real quick, explain to the people who the librarian is. Uh, <laughs> the librarian is a former member of the Unseen University who was changed into an orangutan and vehemently doesn't want to be changed back. He is the librarian at the Unseen University, which is the College for Magic and Wizards. And there's a lot of advantages, uh, <laughs> to being a great ape and being to- able to get around uh, that insane of a library, and I know in the I know in some of the future books he actually takes the time to make sure to like scrub out his real name from all the records because he's afraid if anyone knows it they could change him back into a human. Yeah, uh, later on it becomes they talk about people have become so used to the librarian that if anyone was like there's an ape in here, the the wizards would probably go to the librarian and ask him to look into it because they have just become so accustomed to him being an orangutan that they don't even notice anymore. Uh, he only ever says the word ook. Sometimes eek. And it can mean whatever he wants it to mean. Or eek, yes, occasionally eek. Uh, and he keep gets to keep his job as librarian of Unseen University because it turns out it's really hard to tell a 300-pound ape what to do. It should also be noted that Rincewind knows his real name and refuses to tell anybody. Yeah, that does come up at one point, I think. I've never really read much of the Rincewind books. Um, Ooh, I love me some Rincewind, and the luggage especially. The luggage is amazing. Uh, Rincewind is the, the the first hero, main not hero character, but like main character of any of the Discworld books. And he's just basically a wizard that can't do magic. Uh, but he doesn't really come up in Guards Guards. No, I do. I mean, just because I, I want to hook people onto Discworld... <laughs> I do want to... Rincewind is really funny. He's technically a wizard because he knows... (laughs) Because he read a spell book containing the eight spells that created all of existence and one of them leapt into his brain and is stuck there, which technically makes him one of the most powerful wizards in existence because he knows that spell, but that's the only one he knows. And if he were to say it, it could possibly unmake existence. Yeah. 
That's that's the kind of insanity that we can expect from every one of these books. Just every one of them. And he's a gigantic um, coward. Oh, yeah. All of the characters tend to be either cowards or weirdly brave. Vimes eventually falls into the weirdly brave, but especially in these early ones, he finds himself saving the day, but not really being sure why he's doing it or how he's doing it. His his body's just kind of reacting in spite of itself. Um, Vimes is the ultimate hard-boiled detective who has lost all faith, but keeps saving the day anyways. Uh, well, and things uh, get a, not just crime drama, but they get a little noiry with uh, his relationship with Sybil. Yeah, that's uh, perfect. If I was figuring out how to next do this, so Carrot has entered into the di- or into Ankh-Morpork. They're figuring out what's going on. Carrot has unleashed kind of the chaos in the world, and they suddenly dragons start appearing or a dragon starts appearing and Vimes is forbidden from looking into it. And like, they're just going to kind of hush everything up because dragons, real dragons, Draco Nobilis, as they call them in this, haven't been seen on the disc in centuries. Mm -hmm. So he goes to the crazy dragon lady, Lady Sybil Rankin, to learn more. She is obscenely rich and obsessively looks after dragons like the, the, the swamp dragons, which are the little tiny ones. And Sybil Rankin might be the most perfect character outside of the librarian ever created for the Dispo. <laughs> I love everything about her, and it's it's an internal tragedy that she never gets a book as a main character. She appears in a lot of books, but like I, you never get a book from the point of view of Sybil, and I would have loved that. I loved that she basically just naturally had the voice from Dune. Yeah, she uh, <laughs> she is so aristocratic and so used to like what she says goes that she'll give the order without even thinking about it. Like they talk at one point of she goes to the Shades, which is the worst part of Ankhmore Park, and no one attacks her there because they're just certain that like. Uh, if anyone tried to pull a knife on her, she'd tell them to like pull their pants up and stop being silly, and they would just do it without even like thinking about it, just automatically. And yet, being uh, even though she's bred from such nobility, she's she's the dragon equivalent of a horse girl. Yeah, she's extremely oh, the the horse girl answer is like the perfect description. She's uh, she basically lives alone in this big house. She. Uh, is she's described similar to like a Valkyrie. Like she's fucking huge. Very Wagnerian. Yeah. She's completely bald because anyone who works with dragons doesn't keep hair for very long. So she'll have like different wigs. Uh, And she's extremely down to earth. She, she has never really been in a relationship before. She has never, I mean, it is revealed in this that she is a virgin when a dragon decides that he is going to eat the most preeminent virgin in the town because she just never had time for that silly soppy stuff because she's doing important things like raising dragons. Uh, well, I mean, it's even described that her, her bedroom is decorated as such that it's, it's the type of bedroom that one would never have expected a man to ever see the inside of. And never cared about. Um, And it's a really fun dichotomy of 
Vimes is the ultimate in like self-loathing and cynicism and doubt. And Sybil is not that. She's the exact opposite. She is down to earth and practical and straightforward and uh, is Vimes will help people kind of despite himself. Uh, She's described in this as a woman out to give all that she can. Sybil exists to help those kind of around her, whether it's dragons or Vimes or she even gets along with Nobby Nobs like they made friends over the realization that her grandfather had his grandfather whipped once for robbing them or something like that. Like, <laughs> and sorry, like when, when we did the Dresden episode, we were pretty good about like this happened and this happened and we are just bouncing all over here. It is hard to give a scene by scene description of Pratchett because so much is happening well in here at once there's so much happening at once and if you just describe what's happening it's not as funny as the book is and we can't exactly just sit here and like explain jokes all day because that sucks yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's not fun for anyone and the humor is is a giant part of it yeah uh, a thing I have realized because for a long time, I didn't really like I read fantasy novels a bunch in like middle school, early high school, and then I stopped reading fantasy. And I have realized that the fantasy I enjoy is kind of comedic fantasy, but comedic fantasy that's not just comedy. Uh, Discworld, uh, Rat Queens, stuff that can be just blindingly funny and then turn around and do a really serious, capable scene. Um, I, I get stuck on stuff like, you know, Game of Thrones, which is amazingly popular and people love it. And I read the first book and it was very well written, but it took itself so serious. Oh, yeah, it's a bit grimdark. Uh, and the Discworld is not, although it will randomly drop into really dark theory or just really dark shit happening. Dude, and but then well, and people die all the time. In these books, too. Usually in some pretty mm-hmm. horrific ways. Death is a major character who appears... He is the only character to appear in every Discworld book. And he... As I said, he's in every book. He is the stereotypical death. He's, you know, tall skeleton with a scythe and a big cloak and stuff. He has a horse named Binky, who is a normal horse. He had a skeletal steed but its head kept falling off and he had to wire it on. And that was exhausting. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's from Reaper man, which is after this. So I don't know if you've read no, that. not yet, but, uh, Oh God, it's so funny. Uh, apparently at one point he did a flame steed, but for obvious reasons that went badly when you're wearing a big cloak. Um, and death always talks like this. Everything he has is full capitalization and not in uh, quotes. And not in quotes. Um, in the TV adaptions, Christopher Lee voiced death oh. in one of them. Yeah. The the actors they have gotten for the live action adaptations of Discworld have been insanely good. Uh, Jeremy Irons played Lord Vetinari in one of them. Ooh, that's good. Ooh, that's good. Uh, the other one was... the I don't remember the actor's name. He played Tywin Lannister in Game of Thrones. Oh, Charles Dance. Charles Dance also played Lord Vettel. Oh, that's also really yeah, good. He did it. It was so that's good. That's also really good. I actually liked it better than Jeremy Irons, but also just it was a 
it was uh, a better adaptation, I thought. So that's, mm. he had more to work with there. And I've jumped from place to place to place again. Uh, well, that's fine. I mean, once again, this is the kind of thing where I would kind of more like lean towards trying to encourage people to read it rather than hit every beat in the book. Oh, yeah. I uh, We could sell this for days and not really get across how brilliant these books are. Uh, uh, and the only way to really get it is to read them and then probably read it a second time because there will be stuff you missed. So on the note of reading them, I did highlight a few different descriptions that jumped out to me. If you would humor me with Please. being able to read some and maybe this might get across a little bit more of what we're talking about with with Pratchett's writing. Mm -hmm. uh, so here we go. Uh, it is said that the gods play games with the lives of men. But what games and why and the identities of the actual pawns and what the game is and what the rules are, who knows? Best not to speculate. Thunder rolled. It rolled a six. <laughs> uh, let's see, what else do I have here? Uh, it was a 500 mile journey and surprisingly quite uneventful. People who are rather more than six feet tall and nearly as broad across the shoulders often have uneventful journeys. People jump out at them from behind rocks and say things like, oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else. That one throws me because just imagine someone with a six foot shoulder span. That is like, that's like Hulk level fucked up body wise. Uh, I will. <laughs> Carrot, for whatever reason, reminded me a shit ton of Caramon from... Dragonlance. So I uh, I kind of just use the same person in my head. But that's awesome. That works yeah, for me because I love Caramon. So <laughs> uh, it was possibly the most circumspect advance in the history of military maneuvers, right down at the bottom end of the scale that things like the charge of the light brigade are at the top of. Yeah, that's when they're Carrot's trying to arrest the entire bar and everyone's like, we should go help him. But they're going like a mile an hour being like, oh, I'll help him. But, you know, we don't want to get killed. So. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Ankh-Morpork, brawling city of a hundred thousand of a hundred thousand souls. And as the patrician privately observed, ten times that number of actual people. <laughs> yeah. Nobby looked up from the table in the corner where he was continually failing to learn that it is almost impossible to play a game of skill and bluff against an opponent who smiles all the time. I wanted to point that out because I thought it was a good callback to uh, uh, one of the descriptions of uh, God playing his ineffable game of chance with the world in Good Omens. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the descriptions includes uh, your opponent smiling all the time. It makes it hard. I highlighted this one because it spoke to me, because it's a lot like my normal food. Uh, he felt an appetite for once, one it'd take more than a drink or two to satisfy. He strolled along for breakfast at Harga's House of Ribs, the habit of years, and got another unpleasant surprise. Normally, the only decoration in there was on Sham Harga's vest, and the food was good solid stuff for a cold morning. All calories and fat and protein, and maybe a vitamin crying softly because it was all alone. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have any like specific quotes, but this, it, this is not my favorite of the guards books, but it does have, I think, my all-time favorite joke from them. Sergeant Colon keeps trying to say, your history, pal. 
mm-hmm. or like your history or whatever. But he can't get it right, and he keeps putting, saying different classes instead. So he's like, "What? You think you're special? You're geometry." <laughs> Later on, he's like, "He took a valiant stab at it. You're home economics," and it's the dumbest joke, and I just <laughs> die every time I hear it. Oh, I did have one more. Okay, hit me. All right. Charred and blazing wreckage rained down around the distillery. The pond was a swamp of debris covered with a coating of ash. Out of it, dripping slime rode Sergeant Colon. He clawed his way to the bank and pulled himself up, like some sea-dwelling life form that was anxious to get the whole evolution thing over with in one go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... Yeah, that's all. That's just yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. I am uh, trying to talk about this and I have so much I want to say and so much I don't know how to say at the same time. Really, I just, I can't recommend these books enough. Um, I'm, I am absolutely certain that we are going to not just do more Discworld book reviews and later on, but more guard books. Because they're just, they get better with every book. Well, and uh, being the first Discworld we covered and... St- as we already said, kind of wanting people to read this, we won't go into specifics, but the book is smart. Beyond being funny, yeah. it's smart. And you get a lot of thoughts in on the policing and governing of people, especially as Vime's character changes through the book and being able to see an idealized example through Carrot. Uh, and then, like, the ultimate terrible example through Nobby, like, mm-hmm. you get the full spectrum, and in the middle you find Vimes somewhere who is imperfect, but he makes it work. Uh, and you get to see, I don't know, like, like we already said, some of it already uh, makes fun of uh, certain things. I, I mean, I brought up the smallest thing of, like, dog breeding, but there's a lot of just jabbing fun at monarchies and the way that people react to them. And it has what is probably, like, at the very end, the patrician gives his view on humanity. And it is probably the darkest thing Pratchett had written up to this point, like the bleakest thing he had written as part of the Discworld. And it's never quite argued against, but it's never quite confirmed either. It, it, it is really, I think, where he really starts exploring human nature and how there is some really nasty evils that we can do as a people. But more often than not, it's not that we're evil. It's just that we're alone and scared. And a lot of the Discworld is about not just being alone and scared. Right. A lot of the Discworld's about being really happy and laughing uncontrollably while trying to read it uh, in the break room and at your work. being like, whoa, that was serious. And then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and people are like, what are you laughing about? And you're like, I do not have the time to explain <laughs> the last hundred pages to you. Like, just, I cannot explain that an orangutan just went back in time in a library anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I have been trying to get people to read Discworld. I have had one, I think getting you to read Guards Guards was my second success over the course of like three years. Um, it is, it is a hard sell because they're like, what's it about? And I'm like, everything. 
Well, and now you don't realize how much of a success it is, because I have read some Discworld, but this did jump ahead in where I was at, mm. and I had been reading them in order, so now I will have to read the two in between, or else it is going to really fucking bug me, so... Oh, that's not bad. You've got some good books yeah. coming up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm excited, uh, but... Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, darn. Oh, I have to read the Discworld. Right? Damn you for putting more things on my ingesting slate. But still, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to enjoy like, the fuck out of it, so... Uh, and it's interesting. The books go weirder and weirder as it goes along. I've recommended the... Uh, the the folklore of Discworld as a book, which is a book where he talked about folklore and he used the lens of the Discworld to describe it. Like, here's the things that in, they call it Round World, that influences the Discworld. He also did two or three novels called The Science of Discworld that uses stuff that happens in the Discworld to talk about real world science. Okay. Like, he's written serious educational books that are featured of wizards on the disc looking onto round world and learning about our science. That's awesome. It's weird. He's like any, he wrote 42 books over the course of like 30 years and they weren't, and he didn't just write disc world books during that time too. He was putting out two or three novels a year for most of my life until he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of them are good. I have never read a bad Discworld book. Even the ones that are only okay are still head and shoulders above most books that I have read. Yeah, I know. Like I said, that's all That's all what makes it so hard with the fact that I'm going to have to read a few more. So. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, any, any last thoughts on the disc before we uh, drop to recommendations and send people on their way uh, to the bookstore? Or all, right. They're all on Audible, I should say that. Or almost all of them. There's like two missing. No, just... I mean, this is another one of those things with as much as we talked about it, we scratched the surface. Like, we didn't even mention Octarine. Uh, the color. Of right. <laughs> uh, or any of the other just super fun things that make up the disc. But uh, check it out. It's all great. Yeah. He does it. You can... You can technically jump in at any book. I'm the only one bitching about going in order, so. I know a lot of people that go in order, and I think that's part of what intimidates people, because they're like, it's how many books? I'm like, no, just shut up and trust me. Um, I, as I said, I started with book, like, 35. Uh, one of CeCe's first Discworld books was Thud, which is, like, the fifth, I think just out of the guards books, which makes it pretty late in the series anyway. So it's also probably in the thirties. Mm -hmm. And she said she read it even just as a teenager without any problem. Like she was just able to follow what was going on in it without, without, you know, the previous five dis uh, guard books and the previous God knows how many Discworld books. Yeah. He does an amazing job of making sure you know what you need to know. And if you know more, there's a joke about that in there too. Yeah. Yeah, every time. Uh, any recommendations for this week? Oh, shit. Recommendations. Yeah, how about... You know, you brought it up earlier. I really wish I would have saved one for the morning glory for this episode, because they are somewhat similar. Uh, so I'm going to go in a completely different direction, 
and recommend the sci-fi action movie Equilibrium. Is that the gun gun uh, That gun kata. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I've seen that. Uh, That's a weird. Christian movie. Bale, uh, Sean Bean. Uh, I forgot Sean Bean was in that. Holy shit. Uh, Sean Pertwee. Uh, whatever wow. the name of the guy is that plays Robert the Bruce in Braveheart. Uh, anyway, it's a future where emotion has been outlawed because it leads to things like war and there's like a big brother overlord sort of figure and the entire populace has to take these drugs to suppress their emotion and art's been outlawed and Christian Bale is the best of the police that enforce this and then he misses his drugs one day. And emotions start happening. And he's a complete uh, badass with... Uh, there's a, we mentioned Gunkata. There's a, a specific martial art that would never work that was made up for this movie that is terrible to think about but amazing to see uh, put on screen. So Nice. In some ways, I almost uh, think of it as like proto John Wick style action, but yeah, it's it's not necessarily a great movie, but it's a great movie at the same time. One hundred percent. Yeah, uh, I am going to go with first of all, hardcore content warning for my recommendation this week. It is the dirtiest book I have ever read. Uh, it is called Crooked Little Vein by Warren Ellis. Okay. It is based off his early experiences on the internet. This private detective is hired to track down a secret copy of the Constitution, or like a second Constitution that has like weird powers. It's it's a strange lineup, but it's really an excuse of this guy to like travel across America and learn all the weird kinky fetishes that were being talked about on Usenet groups in the 90s. Oh, okay. Uh, like, you know people injecting their private bits with saline solution so they like quadruple in size right any weird disturbing fetish stuff that i didn't know existed and i mean it's not like cannibalism for and it's not super detailed but it's enough that i don't like i i wanted the audiobook of this and i was like no i can never get the audio <laughs> i do not have the emotional energy to explain that i am not actually listening to crazy porn um but it is Warren Ellis, so, I mean, I've talked about him before. He's one of the most brilliant comic book writers who's ever lived. So it's dark, and it's funny, and the action scenes are extremely well-written. The women are women. They're, like, they are people. Mm -hmm. Even though they, you know, the main woman in this is extremely sexual, but she is not just a sex object. Right. And like actively holds it against people when she's treated that way. So it's, uh, it is a very good book. It is a very dirty book, though. <laughs> so know what you are getting into with this novel. Right. Don't let your dad read it. Uh, <laughs> awesome. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can yeah, only it, imagine and yeah. <laughs> it it's right in front of me. It was written in I think the Bush era too. So like. The politics of it are a little different than what we're used to today, but it's kind of, in some ways, still the prototype of what we would be used to seeing today. Okay, cool, cool. But yeah, uh, on top of you know reading that and reading or watching your movie, you should uh, 
you should check out some sub- sub- subscriptions with us and possibly some uh, social medias of ours. Yeah, that's right. If you guys would hit subscribe, however you're listening to us right now, that would be awesome. That makes sure that you get the next episode and the one after that. And as we continue to make them, you just continue to get them as soon as we put them out. Uh, if there's any way for you to rate and review however you're listening to us right now, that would also be awesome because the entire world is run on algorithms now and that gets us in there better. Yeah, the the more that we pop up on stuff, the more we will be seen, the better it is for everyone involved. In order to, you know, check out more of our past stuff or anything else we might be doing, you can go check out the website, www.generalnerdcast.com. Uh, you can check out the entire back catalog over there, contact us, or by emailing us, uh, generalnerderypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, while you're over at the website, if you click the links up at the top, you'll see that we are part of the Earworm Podcast Network. Through the links, you can check out the other shows on the network, listen to me talk about horror movies over on Fried Squirms, listen to Zach talk about wargaming, and you, I mean, you mentioned a little bit already, you got, what, Klingon Art of War coming up, right? Yep, uh, later tonight we're recording the Klingon Art of War gaming episode and then next we're going to frederick the great we've done sun tzu we've done machiavelli it's just we read uh military literature really like military advice and uh equate it to wargaming so like warhammer 40k larping stuff like that uh so go check that out and you can always check back to that website, earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. That'll be the easiest way to keep updated as more shows get That's added. I, find all our stuff. I think, did I hit everything? Oh, and just, you know, search for General Nerdery across social medias. Um, yeah, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're learning how to use them. Uh, for someone who's on social media as much as I am, I'm really terrible about upkeeping non-private pages i'm slowly (laughs) doing it i'm slowly using it more and more so like like i said if you guys if you guys follow our twitter you would have known right away when i bought mortal Kombat the other week that sort of thing so uh in the meantime we're general nerdery i'm zach i'm tyler dismissed